The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon pins a helpful cheat sheet for curtailing bank regulations, but a key departure at the Fed stands in the way of immediate reform. Those are the topics for discussion on this week's edition of The Views Room, a conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of finance. I'm your host, Jennifer Saba, and I'm here with Anthony Curry. Anthony, welcome back. G'day, mate. Also joining us from Washington, D.C. is Gina Chan. Gina, also a pleasure to have you back on the show. Hi, guys. All right. It's going to be one big banking podcast here. Don't we just love it? So, Anthony, J.P. Morgan's head, uh, Jamie Dimon, released his letter to shareholders, a 45-page missive. Sounds like a doorstopper. <laughs> you went through yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I did. And actually, I've got to tell you, I mean, I, it, it's one of the two or three letters to shareholders from bank executives that's worth waiting for. And I say waiting for because the first letters were coming out from the, some of the, the, the smaller banks in February. Now, before we get into the specifics of what Diamond talks about, what's good about what he does, regardless of whether you uh, believe what he says or likes what he says, he makes it readable and actually makes banking sometimes sound interesting uh, for those who might not necessarily find it an interesting topic. And he will dig into a lot of issues that his peers rarely do. And I, I just I've looked at some of the other ones as well this year, uh, as I do every year. And you know, if I go back a year, the likes of Brian Moynihan at Bank of America were talking about you know the, the, the fintech revolution. They were talking a little bit about regulation, a few other things, as, as well as talking about you know what's going on with their bank, how well they've done, or what they've got to improve. And they're all they always write letters that are shorter than Jamie Dimon, and thank heaven for that because most of them won't write as well as Jamie Dimon does. But you know, this year. You think about what's happened, right? Just in the, in the past few months, you've got Trump winning the election. You've got the so-called uh, unleashing of animal spirits, which I may just remind everyone Ugh, is a terrible phrase. Because basically it means let's have terrible. a bit of brainless fun and then get hit by a car. I mean, a- animals are not known for you know, thoughtful process. Animal spirits unleashed. Bank stocks go up 25%, 30%. Everyone's waiting for deregulation, tax cuts, everything. Isn't everything fantastic? Finally, we can talk about properly what we want to have done to the industry now that we've got the Democrats out of the way. And what do the vast majority of bank CEOs say in their shareholder letters about this? Absolutely sweet <laughs> Fanny Adams. <laughs> All right, 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 right. So, so just stop here for a second. What was the thing that really jumped out at you uh, at this, this letter? Well, I, I think, as you said in introduction, he goes through so many things, here, which he's mentioned before. This is Diamond is not a man who keeps thoughts to himself. He did for about six months after that big $6 billion loss in, what, 2012, 2013. But he has, since the beginning of the regulatory process after the financial crisis, he has been pretty clear about what he thinks about various regulations. But he also, just so I understand this, he isn't exactly advocating that they completely scotch everything. Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, it is quite funny reading through it, actually. He, he spends a fair bit of time going over the regulations he thinks are a problem. And one of them, for example, is the stress test that's done every year where his, the main beef, as with many banks, is we don't exactly understand how the Fed does it and we want more clarity and maybe we'll now get it. Which, you know, I mean, what you don't want to give banks is here's exactly how we do something. Go away and game it. Right? That's, so I think the Fed is right to keep a degree of opacity to it. But he also he, he peppers uh, two or three times. He peppers his attacks on some of the regulations with the word 
appropriately. In other words, you know, the Fed has appropriately made sure that they're, they're looking at bigger losses than we at the banks would expect. But that's kind of like a you know, backhanded compliment as he turns around and says we should change everything. Um, <laughs> um, but change everything right. to suit, to suit Ex- exactly. the Exactly. But, but look, he's, he's not saying that they should get rid of everything. There are certain things he goes for. I mean, he's, he, he talks about the gold plating of regulations that uh, the US is putting on the industry. So that means you know, extra capital beyond what international regulations would have, extra limits on lending and other things that, that aren't necessarily out there in, in the rest of the world. Another one is, is uh, what does he call it, operational risk capital. About $200 billion is currently held by US banks to cover operational risk elements that were never measured in that way before. And as he argues, look, most of what we've got here is it could be that we're we're, we're taking loans from from or we're, t- we're taking small collateral from. No, it's, yeah. it's not in this in this is operational risk isn't about small businesses. It's just about how a bank is run. It normally takes the operational risk into account. Maybe not as well as it could do. Maybe maybe better than the Fed thinks. What he's saying is that the industry in the U.S. has got two hundred billion of capital tied up in this, and it's kind of a pointless. Well, does thing it to just do. sit there? I mean, what, what yeah, do you it's, mean? Yeah, yeah, it basically means that they they have to have extra capital against these perceived risks that the right. that the regulators. So he's in the US. he's arguing that this could be better deployed. Well, he's saying that really it should either be overhauled or actually, frankly, it should be nixed, he's saying, and that $200 billion could be put to good use. And this is where he really does provide, as you say in the introduction, he provides Republicans and Donald Trump with a really handy cheat sheet or bluffer's guide to what can change in regulation. Now, if you're a, a politician, the last thing you want is to dig into a very long tome about derivatives reform or about operational asleep. risk. Exactly. These <laughs> My things, eyes are glazing they, over. They don't make for very good... Um, <laughs> So your eyes are glazing over. How do you know I feel? I've got to read this stuff. 45-page uh, missive. <laughs> well, he, uh, he, he makes good arguments for, for why some reforms need to be made. You might not believe them, but he makes good arguments. But if you're a politician, you're not going to grab hold of those and take them to, to your electorate, especially if they're Trump supporters. You, they don't really care about this stuff, and they're not going to necessarily going to want to try and understand some of it. What he does do, though, is he lays out in, in a few places the kind of money, not that it just can be saved for banks, because, of course, he's talking his book, but what this could mean for the economy. So, you know, one thing he talks about is this globally systemically important banks surcharge. Okay, your eyes are glazing over again, I can see it. But what he does is he says, we're holding 15 billion on that and we don't need to. And he gives various numbers about how much, according to the Fed, banks would lose if there was a really bad um, economic downturn. So it's basically 10% of the capital the banks hold. We can cope with this. We've got a $15 billion surcharge we've got to hold because of this gold plating of capital. If we get rid of that, that's $190 billion of loans we can make. So there you, you can imply that you know they think they can lend 12 times as much as their capital is. But yeah, $190 so he's, billion so he's like is he's speaking to Trump. Like he's, he's speaking Trump's yeah, language. Exactly. So, Gina, this brings us to the Fed, and and there's a key position here that you were covering earlier. Basically, the Fed regulatory chief, Daniel Tarullo, he's stepping down, and he was a huge advocate for tighter bank restrictions. And so it seems to me like this this is like the stars are aligning. Like Trump can now take a hacksaw and just completely reform bank regulations. But you kind of argue that, hey, wait a minute, his departure may gum up the motor. What's going on? Yeah, well, it was interesting that Jamie Dimon's letter came out around the same time that Trullo is leaving the Fed, and he gave um, a farewell speech that mostly defended the post-financial crisis reforms. There's a few things where actually he and Jamie see eye to eye, but they're very few, and, and most of them are actually arguing for keeping a lot of the things that the Fed has done. 
So with his departure, um, he's the one who really drove a lot of these tougher rules, as you say, and the White House does not seem close to naming a replacement for him. And that position is is really powerful. I mean, Trullo didn't have the official title of vice chair of supervision, but he was the de facto head of the regulatory effort. So he was really the key driver and even Fed Chair Janet Yellen really deferred to him on those issues. And without somebody else sort of taking that spot, no one's really driving the train. And that person can do a lot of things unilaterally to make life easier for the banks. And with that position empty, I think the Fed's just going to sort of keep on um, doing what they've been doing, which is actually a lot of Trullo's uh, policies. So status quo then until until the Trump administration says, and, and, and is it the Trump administration? I mean, forgive my ignorance here. Are they the ones who would appoint the seats? Yes, it would, it would have to come from the White House in terms of a nomination. Um, there's been various names floated around. Um, one person, a G executive, David Nason, has already actually taken his name out of the game because it was taking so long and and some of his critics because he was part of the Treasury Department during the George Bush years when the crisis occurred and the the related bailouts occurred. Uh, criticism was building around him because of that and the White House was basically silent on on all of this so he decided he sort of had it and (laughs) moved on. Um, And various other names that have come up are are also sort of not been able to gather a consensus among various people in the White House and in the Treasury Department and, and others who have a hand in this. So it's basically like pretty much how every other appointment seems to have been going with the Trump administration. There's a, there's a lot of, it seems to me, like hangups and back and forth and who's the best person and then what happens is just like a seat remains open for a long time. Yeah, it just sort of languishes. And I mean, there are things that Congress could also do. Actually, a lot of the things that uh, Jamie Dimon uh, pushed for in his letter are things that Congress could also just mandate uh, that the Fed do and, and change. But the problem there is a lot of those proposals would need Democratic support because um, the Senate doesn't have enough Republicans to beat back any sort of filibuster effort. So the Congress is really lost there, too. So it's, it really is up to the Fed and whoever takes this spot to replace Tarullo to be able to do a lot of things on their own. But that can only, again, happen when that person is in place. Trump signed an executive order saying that let's we want the the, the the agencies to look at ways of, I'm not sure he called it rolling back Dodd-Frank, but trying to make sure Dodd-Frank works better or whatever phrase he used. Do you think maybe, the, the, is there some method in madness here? I hate that phrase. I can't believe I'm using it about Trump. Animal spirits there's, there's and ma- method in madness. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I should, probably just madness in madness, I should be saying. Um, but um, why not just leave this post open until that um, that regulatory review is done and then you get someone in who can help push that through? Well, I think the a lot of the things that they want done, I mean, Trump has already talked about, you know, we just talked the other day about putting a major haircut on, on Dodd-Frank and, you know, but so far a lot of it has just been words and not actually action. Even this review of the rules which aren't due until the end of June is, uh, it seems sort of kind of a, a, a wash in terms of matching uh, the rhetoric to um, what they're actually doing. The problem with waiting for someone is just, it's going to take so long. As Jen mentioned, there's very few people who are actually, have been nominated. Once you're nominated, the process to actually get you approved through the Senate also takes months. 
this is Washington and they're tied up in tax reform and, and possible government shutdown and other debt ceiling debate. So there's a lot of other things on their plate. And so it really does require somebody to really drive that train the way Trullo did. And without that, it's, you know, no one at the Fed, I think, feels comfortable that they have the authority to really make any major changes. So, Gina, there's another vacant position at the Fed. This one is basically the seat of uh, Jeff Lacker, who was a regional president, and he stepped down basically from a, a leaking scandal, right? He he leaked the, the minutes of, of the Fed that um, wasn't public yet. And and to an analyst who ended up publishing a note, sort of wink, wink, nod, nod, kind of indicating that this could happen. Um, this had dragged on for years, but he said, OK, listen, I'm leaving now because I admitted that I did this. Yeah, it's it's pretty astounding. I mean, this case has dragged on since 2012. Uh, Janet Yellen, the Fed chair, got hauled before Congress. Um, there were subpoenas issued. The Justice Department was looking at this. So... There was uh, a lot of attention um, on this case and the fact that... And did they know that he did it or did he just reveal this? It's it's sort of unclear, you know, when they knew. And that might be, um, I imagine, the topic of even more <laughs> congressional hearings. He did say earlier he was planning to retire. So there, there had been a sense for a while that he would be leaving, but that seemed sort of the normal course of action and not related to any sort of, you know, nefarious um, actions by him. And this really uh, ramped it up and sort of was an abrupt statement of of his departure. So is this kind of the equivalent of an insider trading type of thing? I mean, he gave information to an analyst that I guess would have been market moving. Is that the idea? And that, you know, they were completely upset about it? Or were they upset that he just talked to an analyst about some of these, you know, about some of the conversations that the Fed had been having that hadn't been public yet? Sure. No, it definitely has, you know, implications of, of insider trading and, and improperly sharing confidential information. I mean, the Fed has become um, really sensitive to uh, to how it distributes information. They've banned um, certain news organizations from being allowed to attend certain briefings because they accidentally um, released certain inf- embargoed information uh, too early. And um, and as you say, it is market moving information. Um, the Fed is closely watched by not only investors here, but all over the world and by other central banks. So it's definitely very sensitive and and someone could make a lot of money if they knew that information in advance. So the fact that it's a a Fed regional president who was caught doing this is, is pretty extraordinary. And it also kind of puts the glove, uh, you know, on the other hand, in terms of the Fed um, cracking down on the banks that it oversees for what they think are are improper leaks because of certain revolving door officials who come through the New York Fed and then go work for a bank afterwards and, and maybe share information. Yeah, right. It, do, it doesn't look good. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the Fed has been um, pushing, the idea, certainly under the New York Fed president, has been pushing the idea of uh, let's try and improve the culture and invest in banks and banks after the crisis. And yet here you have a, what is it now, a a five-year-long scandal. I mean, the other bank with a five-year-long scandal recently was Wells Fargo, which we've covered. But we've got so many examples of banks getting things wrong. And now we have the Fed not managing to police itself on one of the most important things it does. 
And of course, the Fed, you know, Gina, you're right. Of course, that you know the, the Fed also has the goal of um, not just making sure that the banks don't leak information or don't do things wrong. They, they also they regulate them. And going back to the conversation we we're having earlier, I mean, the Fed is the chief regulator for a lot of these banks and the chief overseer for. The stress test and other things. The stress test that, as we were saying, Jamie Dimon and other bankers don't like because of its opacity. And here we see opacity working against the Fed because it just can't get its own house in order. It may well not be the worst thing in the world that this guy did. I mean, it's pretty bad for the Fed, but it didn't. It doesn't appear to have caused a great deal of damage, at least. But it looks really, really bad for uh, an organization that is meant to be the chief regulator of the system. Yeah, and, and given that the Fed had its own internal investigation and that it, it took this long, I mean, I know, you know, several other people who were suspected of actually being the leaker and then having problems um, in, in terms of future employment because of mm. that cloud hanging over them. I mean, yeah. it really does um, put the Fed in a, a really bad light given they are the ones who are supposed to know better. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's manna from heaven for Republicans in Congress who don't like the Fed and for those who want to see more regulatory changes and, and, and whatever. And it's manna from heaven for the likes of Jamie Dimon who, and other bankers who, who want to see regulations change and like the idea of some of the regulators looking not quite as smart as they've tried to, uh, to be in the past few years. Well, yeah, but except all that said... I think we can conclude that probably not much is going to happen with bank regulations in the term no, in, actually, in, the, in the future. What, one of the funniest things that comes out of, of the Jamie Dimon letter, I mean, there are a few little uh, asides he comes up with, but one of the funniest things is near the end, he talks about you know, how Dodd-Frank reform should be done. He says it should be done in a de- as depoliticized a manner as possible. And look, <laughs> I don't think he's I don't think he's being naive. I think he knows full well that's not going to happen. And it's all very well calling for it. But I mean, come on, yeah. <laughs> there is no way that anything to do with regulation or even anything in Washington is going to be depoliticized uh, in as as much as he would like, or in fact, at all. I mean, the whole thing is nothing but a political football here. Well, you have to appreciate the (laughs) Hey, look, he's got to try. All right. Well, thank you very much for actually coming back and (laughs) helping me host the show. And Gina, as always, uh, thank you so much for being on The Views Room as well. Thanks for having me. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Gina Chan, and thanks to our producers, Bethel Hopde and Andrew D'Antonio. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Do please share your opinions about our show. Tune in next week for another episode of the Views Room, and thanks for joining us.